Welcome to Truth Transistor Radio. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hendrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 1618. Hello, Truth Transistors. Welcome to episode number 33. Today we're talking about the three views on hell, and that should be interesting. Um, first, I want to talk a little bit about something that's kind of in the recent news and kind of there's a little mystery surrounding it. Damar Hamlin, the football player for the Buffalo Bills, who collapsed on the field. Um, now there's, you know, a lot of people will take these things and run with them like, oh, he had all the booster shots and that's what caused it. I'm not going to speculate on that. What I am going to say is, um, the, when it happened and, you know, I, I wasn't doubting that something bad happened. It, It didn't seem like a crazy hit or anything like that. But the guy collapsed, and that's always sad. So this is nothing, I'm not trying to attack anybody here. I'm not saying nothing happened. (laughs) Uh, But it just seemed weird to me because they canceled the game after that. Um, Which, you know, I've seen terrible things happen in sports where somebody gets a terrible injury, gets carted off, goes to the hospital, whatever. Um, even some people that have collapsed before, and I've never seen a game canceled. However, I sort of didn't, I didn't make a big deal out of that. That was just in my mind, I guess you could say. I I just think it sounded odd. But, um, then after that, I remember that, um, they were talking about how to fix that because the game that was being played had huge ramifications for the playoffs in terms of seeding. <clears throat> and this this is not tip, this is not really about sports, so if you're not into sports, don't follow, you know, don't uh, tune out, but uh, there's more to this cuz <clears throat> there seemed to be something in my I don't know if in my spirit or or whatever that sensed that there was just something weird about this whole thing. Well, anyway, um, I kind of conceded to the fact that canceling the game was the right thing to do. Um, so I understand that. But, like, then they were talking about how to fix it. You know, should they play it, make up the game the week after and postpone the playoffs another week? You know, should they um, play in a neutral field? Something like that. And I thought playing in a neutral field made the most sense. Actually, at first I was thinking delaying the playoffs for a week. But then when somebody said, you know, if they made up the game, it really doesn't affect much except for the seeding between those two teams and who gets home field advantage. And somebody else said, well, maybe they should just play in a neutral field. And that seemed to be the way that they were going. 
Well, they didn't play in a neutral field. They acted as if, you know, they just went by the record as was and whoever had the home field advantage got it, which was the Bills team, the team of DeMar Hamlin, the guy that collapsed on the field. And I thought that was strange. (laughs) And the best explanation I heard, which still doesn't make sense if this is supposed to be a real real sports um, competition, professional sports competition, that you don't break the rules just because whatever. But I heard that both teams voted on just playing the game in Buffalo because basically they make more money that way than playing in a neutral site. Something like that. I'm not sure if that's the real reason, but it just seems kind of strange that even the other team, the Cincinnati Bengals, didn't fight to have it played in a neutral field or whatever for fairness. Now, it didn't matter because the Bengals ended up crushing the Bills anyway in Buffalo. But the weird thing to me was how DeMar Hamlin appeared at the game but he was wearing a hoodie and a mask. You couldn't even see his face. And he was surrounded by security. He didn't talk to any media. Um, I don't think I mentioned... He was in the hospital for several days. And apparently his heart stopped a few times <clears throat> before this. This was like three weeks earlier, I guess, when he collapsed. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> there was rumors starting to go out about the vaccine that he had maybe it, the booster shot maybe caused it and I wasn't going to get into any of that because I don't know that's speculation and as a truth seeker I don't deal in conspiracy theories I don't deal deal in speculation I just deal in observation anyway so <clears throat> he appears at the game, uh, but secure, he's surrounded by security and, you know, and his, his family apparently is with him and all this stuff. And, um, you know, and you can barely see anything. His, he can't see his face. The, the only time they give a clear video of him is the back of him or what have you, um, which is very suspicious in and of itself. Now, I didn't see the game when it happened. I, I really wasn't paying attention. However, a friend brought to mind, he, he pointed that out. And, um, you know, my friend, he also asks questions. He doesn't just believe what anybody's telling, telling him, you know, what the media says or whatever. So, apparently during the game and somebody showed me the the video footage later he flashes like the pyramid sign which a lot of people interpret it as the heart which he he's done quite a bit where he puts like the heart shape uh, with his hand but in this case it looked more like a triangle and uh, at first I wasn't sure but then somebody pointed out that the bottom part of that was straight and not pointed like a heart would be and I was like oh yeah that's true and then he went straight from that to uh, the 666 sign which is kind of like the uh, okay sign with both hands and um, yeah which which seemed to raise red flags and then a lot of people started to 
spread rumors about maybe that wasn't really him, maybe he's dead, you know, things like that. And, um, and then following the game, by to confirm, quote-unquote confirm, that he's actually alive and that was actually him at the game, he posted a picture of him uh, on, with a hoodie on and a mask so you couldn't really see his face and he's kind of looking down a little bit so you can't really tell if it's him. And then this is on Twitter and then at the top it says clone. He typed in clone, which some people speculate he's just trolling people, but it just kind of adds to the questions. Now, this is only a three-week-old issue, so it's not really a, you know, who knows? Maybe he'll come out and give an interview soon. It's just a little weird, you know, strange. Well, on a message board that I'm on called Canary Cry community message board which if you like this podcast I would suggest checking that out and also the Canary Cry News Talk podcast um, which I'm sure more most of you they have a lot more viewers than I do so but anyway um, I went on the message board to see if you know to talk a little bit about uh, the DeMar Hamlin situation just to see if anybody said anything. And it kind of led me to something else that was talked about that was kind of had similar, uh, it was on a similar um, topic, I guess. And it was concerning a woman named Tiffany uh, Dover. And I had never heard of that story, but that was two years old. Well, I kind of went on down that rabbit trail for a while. And come to find out, okay, so she was in the news... Uh, one of the first to get the COVID vaccine. I think it was just local news, but after that it was covered by several different sources. None of the big ones, CNN, CSNBC, Fox News, none of the national ones, but there was the NBC podcast that did a, did, talked about it. But this was... <laughs> this got me down a, a rabbit trail that's two years old, not just three weeks. And um, basically, she was one of the first to take the vaccine. She was a nurse or or uh, not. A, yeah, some something. And she worked in healthcare. And there's video of her and like a press conference and she's taking the vaccine. And then she talks about it, basically promoting it. But while she's talking to the press, she faints. And she had been on, she had social media and all this stuff, and it seems to, the social media accounts just stopped after this. Well, basically, obviously this led to a lot of speculation that she fainted because of the COVID shot. And I'm not going to speculate one way or the other on that, but uh, it does make you wonder, and especially how quickly the media was to say it wasn't the COVID shot. You know, she is she is fine, she's alive, she's doing well, blah, blah, blah. But nothing on the social media account. She didn't do any interviews after that to confirm that she was alive. And a lot of people started to wonder, is she alive or not? It's been two years. <laughs> well, about eight months ago, there was a podcast NBC did 
So no video footage, but it's a podcast. Basically called, uh, it's called uh, Tiffany Dover is Dead. But the, okay, so the lady doing the podcast um, basically seems to assume that she's still alive. But she is set a, setting out to go look for her. And, you know, it seems like a fun, cool idea. So I listened to the whole thing. I think the whole there's five episodes and the total of about three hours. And she never finds Tiffany Dover. Only these little hints. <laughs> but she concludes that she's still alive. And that Tiffany just wants to be left alone. Which doesn't answer any questions. It just raises more questions. But I also noticed that most of the podcast was attacking anti-vaxxers and truthers. <laughs> it's like there was just a um, an agenda from the beginning. And anyway, if you want to check that out, you can. But I was just down these two rabbit trails. And, and the, the podcast about Tiffany Dover reminded me of another one, although there was nothing about vaccine. I think this was before the vaccine, but a documentary or a, not a documentary, a podcast called Missing Richard Simmons. And if you know anything about that, there's something similar where he was obviously very outgoing, always in the public, always answering people on social media. And he had this local gym that you know, people near his house that he would always be there for and anybody could come. And then one day he just stopped. He wasn't there. Um, he didn't answer any social media, excuse me, etc. And the podcast seemed very um, sincere in the sense that there was no propaganda attached to it like there was in the Tiffany Dover one. Uh, in the sense that, you know, they weren't promoting something else or a t a dis discrediting something else, you know. It was all about trying to find Richard Simmons. Well, he never finds him, but he concludes at the end that Richard just wants to be left alone and we should honor that. Now, this guy that was doing the podcast apparently was a good friend of his, that he had met Richard Simmons. And even the closest friends were unable. The only person that seemed to know was Richard Simmons' housemaid. And some people suspect that the housemaid sort of controls his life now. And, I mean, it's just, that's all speculation again. I don't want to assume any speculation. So, you know, which was an interesting podcast. But that's kind of how the Tiffany Dover one went. But I don't know in the Tiffany Dover one, Dover one how sincere they were about actually finding Tiffany Dover. Um, in fact, this, this woman doing the podcast was hanging out at the hospital trying to see if anybody coming out looked like Tiffany Dover. Um, which seems like it would be pretty easy to confirm because she worked at that hospital. Um Tiffany Dover did, not the podcaster, sorry. But it's like, but of course, this was during the pandemic, strict rules. She couldn't really go into the hospital, I guess. It just seemed a little odd. Anyway, 
you can look up those stories if you're interested, but I was kind of going down those rabbit trails today. Um, and we'll have to wait and see what happens with the DeMar Hamlin thing if he does an interview in the near future. Um, there's suspicion that it wasn't him. And it just seemed a little strange, especially that tweet where he put clone on top of the picture. You can find that yourself. Damar Hamlin, Twitter. just Or just search for Damar Hamlin clone and see what you find. It's his Twitter account, and that's what he posted. So, what do you think of that, anyway? And again, like any other time, if you want to contact me or anything... You can email me at truthtransistorradio at gmail.com. So if you have any thoughts on those things or anything else that I put on my podcast, let me know. All right? So let's get on to the topic at hand. The three views on hell. So what I would like to do first is name what the three views are and define them. The first one is known as universal Uh universalism which says that basically everybody will end up in heaven Uh, i suppose that there's different versions of this one would be the extremely liberal version i guess where there's no hell nothing they just go straight to heaven Um, now if you want to be very biblical there is a lake of fire and it says anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be cast in the lake of fire Perhaps they would say, well, it just says if anyone. It doesn't say there is anyone. (laughs) And that when Jesus died on the cross, they would say that he paid for everyone's sin and therefore everybody will go to heaven. Now, I hope this is true. I don't think it is biblically, but uh, I hope it is. Now, there is another version of the universal. um, And this is kind of like the, the... um, purgatory where everybody will be in the lake of fire and go through it and it just depends on how long it takes to burn away your sins or something which I have an issue with because that means that Jesus didn't pay for the sin on the cross and of course the reason I don't agree with the first one is because it says you have to believe on the those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And if you don't believe in him, then you won't be saved, right? So <clears throat> um, that's why I can't just assume that everybody's going to heaven. Um, and the purgatory would assume that the work of, or the Jesus on the cross was not enough to pay for our sins. Now, <coughs> excuse me. The third, uh, sorry, the second view is what is, there's two names for this. One is annihilation, like annihilate. For some reason, I have friends that that's hard to say, annihilation. But you just think of annihilate, um, which basically means gets rid of, disposes of, right? Um, basically means when they're cast in the lake of fire, they cease to exist and they don't suffer for eternity. 
um, which is the main view of eternal conscious torment. That's what most fundamental Christians believe. Um, the other name for the annihilation view is conditional immortality, and that is you only live forever if you are saved. <clears throat> so the rest perish or die. So those are the basically a, a description of the three major views. Now, I personally um, was raised... Um, we went to different kinds of churches, Southern Baptist, Disciples of Christ, Spanish Church, a non-denominational church, a couple of non-denominational churches, etc. And my parents always basically taught me eternal conscious torment. So that's basically what I believed growing up. And... Um, I really didn't think much of it. I didn't challenge it in my mind or anything like that. All the verses that talked about hell, I sort of filtered through that lens of eternal conscious torment. <clears throat> well, more recently I discovered a, maybe three, four years ago, I guess, a YouTuber or a, I don't know if he has a YouTube channel or not, but he, he's on YouTube um, defending a view and I can't remember if he has his own channel but his name is Chris Date and he he, he uh, supports a view known as conditional immortality <clears throat> and I listened to it with an open mind and he's a very conservative uh, Christian he's not like a liberal and he, he gave a very thorough biblical argument for this view and um, I was kind of amazed going through it I wasn't totally sure I wanted to be sure and then when I thought about it I realized there's only one verse that really um, seems to indicate eternal conscious torment and that's in Revelation 20 the rest of them talk about fire they talk about you know but if you really look at them, the rest of them don't really indicate eternal conscious torment. And Revelation is a, you know, prophetic, it's got a lot of prophetic language. <clears throat> and so, um, are you going to take that as doctrine when it's more difficult to understand? So, um Anyway, that's kind of an introduction to these views. And um, I guess what I'm going to do is play some audio of somebody else explaining each of the views from their point of view. Um, and that will fill this time because I basically define them all. Um, <clears throat> but I also want to, I mean, I'm kind of tempted to just play the view that I believe in <laughs> but but I want to give a fair representation and argument for each of them uh, <clears throat> and let you decide and I would say study the scripture and prayer um, and let me just say this because this came up in another discussion about the Trinity but I would say about anything really 
um, ask yourself how much of our understanding of Scripture is because of tra tradition or something that, you know, your pastor taught or whatever, and you just sort of filter everything through that lens. Um, and then you realize when you look at it more closely, it doesn't really say that. <laughs> now, I do believe in the Trinity, don't get me wrong. Uh, there was discussion on this at a, a, our church men's meeting. And just kind of as a challenge, somebody gave arguments against the Trinity. Now, they believe in the Trinity, the person, but he, he was just reading from another source and they um basically were he was reading something and then at the end of it he said okay what would you say to this how would you answer these questions and um i realized that if you just use scripture there's not like a definitive um description of what is known as the trinity uh, it does say baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, which is what convinced me. But on the other hand, there's, you know, it's a little obscure. Now, the only uh, clear definition of the Trinity is in the early church. Uh, I think it's in the creeds or something. <laughs> so that's basically where that definition comes from. Anyway, I don't want to get off onto that, but I just wanted to challenge people to ask yourself, whenever you're reading scripture, how, uh, why is it that you understand it a certain way? Have you ever like tested your own, <laughs> own ideas and tried to see exactly what it says? Try to, try to hear other views and, and listen to them because I think this is a, a healthy thing to do when we study scripture to get to truth and not just assume that whatever your denomination or whatever you have been told or whatever is the correct, you know, interpretation or what the Bible actually says. So the first clip I'm going to play is actually the, the theology is called universal salvation. I, I said universal hell. It's universal salvation. So the concept is that everybody gets saved and will end up in heaven. Uh, the name of the video is Extinguishing Hellfire, Universal Salvation. And the name of the channel is The Total Victory. I'll leave a link below. Now, keep in mind, this is not my view. This is a view. And I'm going to let them present it themselves to give an argument. So here we go. What if you found out that a place called hell does not exist? Would you still be a follower of Christ? What if you found out the concept of hellfire was completely mythical and does not appear in the original languages of the Bible whatsoever? What about the outer darkness? What if I told you that is not an eternal place of punishment in the Bible, but rather a temporary event? Would you still be a follower of Christ? Would you still be a follower of Christ if you knew that Christ's atoning work is going to rescue every single human being who has ever lived from the jaws of death? The Bible explicitly tells us this. Where did we even get this concept of hell fire 
and eternal outer darkness. The authorized King James translators use the word hell 54 times in rendering the text, whereas the more modern New International Version only uses the word hell 15 times and never in the Old Testament. Young's literal and other literal translations never use the word hell at all because this in fact does not exist, this concept of hellfire does not exist in the original languages of the Bible. Now to be fair, the concept of hellfire was not invented by the King James translators, but was first introduced into earlier translations of the Bible into English, most notably the Wycliffe Bible by John Wycliffe. The Wycliffe Bible uses the word hell a whopping 122 times. Wycliffe was leaning on earlier Latin translations of the Bible to produce his English translation. The Bible was translated into Latin very early in church history since Latin was a commonly spoken language. Beginning in about the 5th century, Latin manuscripts started to take the front stage in biblical translations. This was the vernacular language. But in Latin manuscripts, they rendered the realm of the dead as inferno, or literally raging fire. Dante's Divine Comedy also used the word inferno for the underworld, likely inspired by Latin manuscripts of the Bible. This notion of fire in the underworld does not exist in the original Greek and Hebrew languages at all. In Latin, the words Sheol and Hades, or realm of the dead, are rendered as inferno or raging fire, but Sheol and Hades do not imply fire at all. Therefore, the whole idea of hellfire appears to have been inspired by Latin manuscripts. And John Wycliffe was working solely from Latin manuscripts. That's all he had to work from. And therefore, this idea of an inferno, hellfire, would have weighed heavily on him as he was making this translation. This is all he had to work from. So the King James translators were really following an earlier translation tradition into English. And they should have known better because they did have the Greek manuscripts in front of them. Although they were also looking at Latin manuscripts and Wycliffe's work would have weighed on them as well. So suffice to say, the concept of hellfire, a dwelling place of the dead, an inferno or raging fire, does not exist at all in the original languages of the Bible. The early church, for probably the first five centuries, would have not even known of such a concept. Such a concept would have been a completely foreign and strange idea to them. The King James translators were translating four different words as hell, implying fire. And this, these were the words Sheol, which was just a realm of the dead in Hebrew, and the Greek word Hades, which was just the realm of the dead in Greek. And also they translated the word Gehenna, which is a place on earth, was a place of judgment on earth, and not a realm of the dead at all. And also the word Tartarus appears one time in the Bible, and it is also not a realm of the dead in fire but is merely a prison for angels before the judgment of the dead where they are detained. Now that leaves us with this concept of the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is that a place of eternal punishment? Now most Christians today reject this idea of hell fire 
um, as being merely metaphorical or allegorical. Well, I'll submit to you, it doesn't exist at all. But if you were wrong about Hellfire, is it possible you're wrong about this concept of the outer darkness? And that, in fact, this is a temporary place and not a place of eternal punishment whatsoever. The outer darkness was given as a parable in context with the wedding feast. The wedding feast of this king who invited people to his wedding. And the people that were supposed to be close to him, the people who were his inner circle, rejected the invitation. And, and so in this parable, the king says, go out and, and find everybody who will come to my wedding. Now, who do you invite to your wedding? You invite your close family and friends, people who love you and want to be with you, are the people who are gonna be at your wedding celebration. This picture of the wedding banquet, the wedding feast, is really a picture of the coronation of God's kingdom. And who is going to be there? Only the people who are the close inner circle, the family of God, God's close friends, and the people who are going to joyously celebrate with him. But like any wedding, this is a temporary event. This is a joyous event. This is the coronation of God's kingdom. This is kicking it all off. And of course, it is a sad, sad thing if you miss this. Those who are not there remain in Sheol, the realm of the dead, until the resurrection on the last day. Only believers in Christ, those who have received Christ, those who are the friends of God will be at this wedding celebration period. As Christians, we pass directly through death and into life. We are not going to have to wait for the resurrection of the dead on the last day like everybody else. Just as Christ said to the criminal on the cross who received him, today you will be with me in paradise. You're not going to wait until the end of human history to be raised from the dead and pulled out of Sheol and Hades. Now, what about this picture of the lake of fire in Revelation and the second death? Isn't that eternal damnation? Isn't that eternal punishment and fire? Well, no. The idea of a second death should not seem strange to Christian believers. That is the whole point of our being born again, that we have died to ourselves and now live for Christ. As Christian believers, we experience a second death before we die. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives us a picture of this and explains it. He says, For no one can lay any other foundation than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. And he concludes by saying, If any man's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved but as through fire. Now, many will try to debunk this by saying, oh, well, Paul is only talking about believers who will be saved as through fire. But that is not a reasonable way to look at that because he says, if any man's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but as through fire. Now, we need to remember that there's only one judgment of the dead and that Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. And Paul is referring to this same one judgment. In fact, this is critical church doctrine. So to invent some other judgment that's special to believers uh, would be to deny critical church doctrine. You're denying the Apostles' Creed. 
you're denying the Nicene Creed. So, as just as Paul said, no one can lay any other foundation other which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. So if you have built your entire life apart from Christ, when you are faced with your sins, when Christ confronts you face to face with your sin, you are literally going to experience a second death. Everything that you cherished, everything that was part of your life, the whole person that you were, is going to be gone. Uh, it is that that person will not enter into God's kingdom. And uh, there may be temporary punishments meted out, but the good news is those people have been raised from the dead. That was the whole point. Christ rescued them from the dead. That's why they are alive, standing before him at the judgment. Now, you have to understand that this idea of eternal punishment completely contradicts the nature of God. God is love. His goodness is free, immutable, eternal, infinite, and impartial. Immutable meaning never changing. Therefore, when you die, his nature is not going to change simply because you pass from death into life. He is the same gracious being, whether we are dead or alive. He is not going to change in his nature of love and goodness. Remember, Christ taught us to love our enemies, and Christ himself died for his enemies. Is God going to hold himself to a lower standard than he requires of us? Most certainly not. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all of his works. Psalm 145.9 It says that a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 11.1 1. This is why we see the image of a scale in our courtrooms, because the punishment must fit the crime. It must be a balanced scale of justice. This is God's standard. This is where our balance scale in the courtrooms came from, from the Bible. Now, obviously, punishing people infinitely for finite crimes here on earth is an infinitely unbalanced scale, and God detests such a scale. He most assuredly will not be imparting infinite punishment. In the book of Psalms 145, we read, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generation. The Lord upholdeth all that fall, and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. And we know that every knee shall bow, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And therefore, just as it says in the psalm, he will raise up all those who are bowed down. Please take the time to visit uh, thetotalvictoryofchrist.com. I'll have more resources there as uh, time goes on. Uh, thank you for listening, and uh, God bless you. So that was the first view, um, and there's two more views coming up. But first, I'm going to play a song that's kind of related to the topic. It's called No Second Chances by White Cross. Covered with so
Once again, that is White Cross with the song No Second Chances. If you enjoy that, look them up. They're on iTunes and other various 
music platforms. So the next view I'm going to look at is known as conditional immortality or annihilation. Uh, the person, Chris Date, that I was talking about, his channel is called Rethinking Hell. So you can look that up. And um, most of the uh, audio clips in his YouTube channel are over an hour long, a lot of debates and everything. So if you want like to really look into it, uh, you can. Um, I found um, a playlist called Shorts. <laughs> And they're all like a few minutes long, so I'm going to clip those together, and uh, that's what you hear. Uh, the first and third one are Chris Date's voice. The one in the middle is somebody else. Uh, so anyway, um, again, this is just an introduction, so if you want to watch a debate or anything, I'll leave the link to his YouTube channel uh, in the description below. What is conditional immortality? Well, according to Rethinking Hell's Statement on Evangelical Conditionalism, conditionalism is just short for conditional immortality, conditionalism is the view that life is the Creator's provisional gift to all, which will ultimately be granted forever to the saved and revoked forever from the unsaved. Put another way, only the saved will live forever, the lost will instead die and never live again. The statement goes on to explain that on that final day when Christ returns, both the saved and the lost will be raised physically from the dead, brought back to physical life. We conditionalists believe that at that point the resurrected saved will be made bodily immortal, capable of living physically forever in the blissful presence of God and in the community of his people. The unsaved, however, will not be raised immortal. They will be raised still mortal, every bit as capable of dying as they are now. Their punishment will exclude them from eternal life by means of a final death, implicating the whole person in a destruction of human life and being. As Jesus puts it in Matthew 10:28, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna or hell. Now to better understand what this statement is saying, consider the two alternatives to conditionalism in the intramural Christian debate over the nature and duration of hell. One of those two views is the doctrine of eternal torment, and the other of those two views is universalism. And both of them believe that when the lost are raised physically from the dead in the general resurrection, they will be made bodily immortal. Every bit is bodily immortal as the saved will at that point be made. Believers in eternal torment believe that these immortal lost people will suffer physically in hell forever, physically, emotionally, psychologically, um, uh, spiritually. Whereas Universalists believe that the immortal lost will at that point go into hell until they repent and express saving faith in Christ, which for the worst and most obstinate of sinners may take eons. Either way, both of these two views maintain that immortality, resurrected embodied immortality, is universally given by God to all humankind. By contrast, conditional immortality maintains that immortality is conditioned upon being saved. And that means that only the saved in Christ, when they rise from the dead, will be made immortal. The unsaved will instead be raised mortal and will, uh, will suffer a final and second death, never to live or experience anything ever again.
So that's conditional immortality. And sometimes this view is called annihilationism because if human beings have immaterial souls or spirits that, that go on existing consciously between death and resurrection, we take Jesus's, we conditionalists take Jesus's statement in Matthew 10, 28 very seriously and maintain that both the body and the immaterial soul or spirit will be destroyed in hell uh, on the day of judgment. So if human beings continue to exist in some sort of conscious disembodied state at, between the first death and the resurrection, they will cease to be entirely when they are destroyed on the final day in hell. If you've listened to people in the church talking about hell, then there's a good chance you've heard people talk about a place of perpetual burning and the gnawing of worms. You might even have heard people say that this is what Jesus taught about hell. After all, didn't Jesus say in Mark chapter 9, verse 48, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So, didn't Jesus teach that people will be tormented in fire and with worms in a place called hell forever? Well, look a little closer and you might be surprised at what you find. Although this saying from Jesus is a popular one to teach the idea of eternal torment in hell, that's really not what Jesus was talking about. This is not just a saying that Jesus made up on the spot to teach what hell is like. He's actually quoting scripture here from the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. In that chapter, the writer describes the judgment of God on his enemies. Look at some of the language used. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Well, the picture is certainly a vivid one. God himself goes into battle and wipes his enemies out. He enters into judgment, and in doing so, he slays the enemy. And then just a few verses later, we read some very familiar words. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Notice the dramatic difference between the scene in Isaiah that Jesus is quoting and the popular doctrine of eternal torment. In the popular doctrine, the victims of God's wrath are alive and will be forever, conscious of their agony for all eternity in hell. But in the words that Jesus is quoting, the people have already died, slain by the judgment of God, and have been reduced to dead bodies that are now being consumed by fire and eaten by worms. Sure, the fire isn't going to be quenched, but whether anybody quenches the fire or not, 
In Isaiah's gruesome picture, it doesn't matter how many bodies there are, the fire itself isn't going to last forever. Jesus wasn't trying to turn the scripture on its head and make it mean something totally contrary to what it first meant. Instead, Jesus is telling people that it's better for a small part of you to be destroyed, like your eye or your hand, than for you to be destroyed completely, like the enemies of God in Isaiah 66. In Mark 9, Jesus is not asking you to make the choice between a nicer eternity and a much worse eternity. It is literally a choice between eternal life and death. Believers in conditional immortality and annihilationism think the Bible teaches that when the unsaved are raised from the dead to be judged, they will literally die a second time, never to live again. Defenders of eternal torment, however, will sometimes cite Genesis 2.17 as proof that death means separation, not an end to embodied life. There, God warns Adam, in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. But of course, Adam doesn't die the very day that he eats from the fruit. He dies 930 years later. And so, it is argued, he must have spiritually died in the sense of being separated from God on the very day that he ate of the fruit. But there are a few problems with this line of reasoning. Firstly, what it means for a human being to be alive has already been explained by this point in the narrative. God creates Adam's lifeless body of dust and then breathes into its nostrils the breath of life, and it's at that point Adam is said to become a living being. So for a human to be a living being is to be embodied and breathing, and to be dead is to no longer be embodied and breathing. Secondly, the word translated die in Genesis 2.17 is used 78 times in the book of Genesis, and 75 of those times are unmistakable, undisputed references to physical death. Only here in Genesis 2 and 3 are there three occurrences of the word where defenders of eternal torment think it carries some specialized meaning of separation. But it strains credulity to think that these three occurrences out of 78 have this specialized meaning when all other 75 universally refer to physical death. Thirdly and finally, when in chapter 3 of Genesis God elaborates upon the sentence he had warned Adam about, his language of death is an unmistakable reference to physical death. So he tells Adam, to dust you shall return. And then he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden for an express purpose, so that they cannot reach out and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So by kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden and revoking their access to the tree of life, God secures Adam and Eve's eventual physical demise, the death he warned about in Genesis 2.17. How then should we understand this phrase, in the day, in Genesis 2.17? Well, firstly, it's important to recognize that very few translations render it on the day, which would come closer to meaning that Adam would die on the very day that he ate of the fruit. Most translations use the phrase in the day, which is more flexible and can be used figuratively. I can say something happened in my grandfather's day, which refers to the time during which he lived, not any specific day therein. Indeed, some translations use the word when, which points to one way of understanding this phrase. If I say when you eat too much you get fat, I'm not saying the moment you overeat you will become morbidly obese, I'm saying the one leads inevitably to the other. It's a statement about certainty, not immediacy. And we can see the phrase used in this way in Deuteronomy 27, 2-4. There Moses tells the people of Israel, on the day you cross the Jordan, you were to perform this ceremony on Mount Eval. But Moses couldn't have expected the mass of the untrained people of Israel to march 15 to 40 miles from where they crossed the Jordan in Joshua 3 to get to Mount Eval on the very day 
they cross that river. Indeed, we see in Joshua 8 that when they finally arrive at Mount Ebal, it's been well over a week. So all Moses was saying was, when you cross the Jordan, you are to perform this ceremony. And they did, just not on that very day. Another possible way to understand Genesis 2.17 is in a literalistic way as saying Adam would die on the very day that he ate of the tree, but perhaps God delayed that death penalty. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin, God provides them with animal skins to cover their nakedness, which could have only come from animals that were killed. Ancient Israel's original readers would have recognized here a proto-substitutionary sacrifice, and perhaps by the blood of that sacrifice, God temporarily covered the sins of Adam and Eve so that he wouldn't have to execute the death penalty on that very day, but they could go on living and reproducing. Whether we understand Genesis 2.17 as saying Adam would die when he ate from the fruit, but not necessarily on that very day, or as a warning he would merit the death penalty on the very day that he ate of the fruit, but God delayed the penalty, either way, Genesis 2.17 is fully consistent with the overall biblical teaching that human beings deserve to physically die and never live again because of their sins. Once again, that is the YouTube channel Rethinking Hell, so go check out that, check out that one. There's longer videos uh, and, and things, debates and such. So some good information on there uh, if you want to know more about that doctrine. This final one is on eternal conscious torment, and the name of the... Uh, video is no, let's see, no more joys. Hold on. Uh, no greater joy ministries. Uh, Michael Pearl, uh, is the one on the video. He has another channel called the door. I like most of what Michael Pearl says. Um, and, uh, I think he's got pretty good doctrine for the most part. I disagree with this one, but I don't, think he's a heretic for it <laughs> so because even most people that probably all the people that go to the church I go to believes in this doctrine here so here is a clip it's about 10 minutes long from no greater joys ministry the the name of this video is called um, Michael Pearl answers do souls suffer in, in hell for eternal in for eternity Bible questions episode 74. Here we are in the studio to answer your Bible questions. Got Jarrett behind the counter. He's the one that does all the editing and takes care of the web and that sort of thing. So he's carried me in here today, sort of, to uh, answer your questions. And I'm just delighted to be here. What's the first question, Jarrett? I recently heard someone say, if a man dies and goes to hell, that he will actually be destroyed and thus not suffer for all eternity. What does the Bible say about this? Well... I wish what you heard was true. When I was uh, about 20 years old, I decided I didn't want to believe in hell. And so I studied the Bible to try to disprove a permanent, eternal, everlasting suffering because if I were God, I wouldn't do that to someone. Uh, not my worst enemy. I, I wouldn't punish them forever in a lake of fire. I, I might kill them and terminate them and make them cease to exist, but to punish them forever and ever, I wouldn't do that. Uh, 
And so if I were writing a Bible and advocating a religion, if I were creating a religion for people to believe and pass down from future generations, I wouldn't put that in it either because that would make it hard for people to believe and accept. It's so contrary to our sensibilities. So I studied for, oh, I don't know, nine, ten months. I suspended my belief in hell to see what the Bible had to say. And after about nine or ten months in searching as thoroughly as I could, and also read literature by everybody I could get a hold of, including the Jehovah's Witnesses, since they're so anti-eternal fire, and the Seventh-day Adventists, and I uh, tried to find anything anybody had ever written and uh, to see what they had to say. And uh, after about nine months, I had to accept the fact that there is an eternal lake of fire. Now, uh, Jared asked the question, and I took a break and ran over to my computer and got some just scripture off of it that I had notes there so that I can be very precise here and make sure this is not just my opinion. Uh, quite a bit uh, that I have three pages of uh, nothing but scripture, but I'll just read you uh, a couple of them. Uh, let's scan down through it here. Uh, Mark nine forty five. If thy foot offend thee, Cut it off, and it is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Now, one could argue, well, the fire never goes out, but the soul would cease. Here in Luke chapter 16, he speaks of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, it says, The rich man in hell lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, they may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now this is sometime after he had died. He's already in the flame. The flame is not destroying the rich man. You say, but that's just a parable. <laughs> well, great. If you look at Jesus' parables, you'll find that every single detail in a parable is specific. And uh, sometimes he gives parables about seeds. And uh, he says the seeds are the word of God. He gives parables about birds. He said the birds are the devils. Uh, but there's, when he gives parables, he interprets the parables for us and tells us the meaning. He didn't interpret this one. He left it standing. And in parables, he never gives personal names. And this one, he gives personal names. In parables, he said there was a, a, a certain man planted a vineyard and uh, had his servants. Or he said there was a bridegroom. In this one, he gives the names. And he says, for I'm tormented in this flame. He said, I have five brethren. Go and testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So the rich man spoke of the fire that he was in as a place of torment that he didn't want his brothers coming to. And then the book of Revelation, to get down quickly to the bottom of it here, uh, he said, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So according to the word of God, the torment is forever and ever. And he says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in them, and death and hell delivered the dead which were in them. And they were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The second death, he 
pictures is forever and ever, tormented day and night forever and ever. And there's quite a few passages that speaks of that torment day and night forever and ever in a fire that won't be quenched. And then we have the example of Lazarus who was tormented uh, and was in a constant state of torment, begging for water to be placed on his tongue. So he was not consumed in the flame. And now another passage, I'll just quote it to you in Matthew. He said, where their worm dieth not, their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Forever and ever, where their worm dieth not. Now what does that mean, their worm? It's possessive, their, T-H-E-R, not, not the worms, but their worm. The book of Isaiah speaks of Satan as being cast into hell. And it says of him uh, that he descended down into the pit. Uh, and it said, uh, verse uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse uh, 9, hell, is, hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It raised them up from the thrones, the kings of the nations. Now this, this would be the same event that occurs at the end of the millennium that I just read to you in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, this is when Satan goes to hell. And they shall speak, those that are the dead in hell shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave and the noise of thy vows. And the worm is spread under thee and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground? Skipping down to verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So Lucifer, when he goes to hell at the end of the millennium, the chief ones, the dead ones, will stir up for him and say, what are you doing here? Aren't you the one that damned all the souls? How come you ended up here as well? And then they say, the worms are under you, the worms cover you. It's just my surmising, what are the worms? But I believe that in hell, the, the very essence of the human soul, uh, the human being will be left, will not be destroyed. Probably this body that we know, this body of flesh, it'll be burned up. It naturally would be in something that hot, that boiling hot. But there's something of the human that cannot be destroyed because it is divine. There's something God himself cannot destroy because he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So God placed something of himself in each of us and we are therefore eternal as God is eternal and cannot be destroyed. And so when we're cast into hell, all that remains, I suspect, is our worm, their worm, which dieth not. And that worm will be a little, little eye, little mouth like a worm has a little maggot that lies in the burning ashes of hell and the worms will be under Lucifer and the worms will be over him and he'll be just another outcast, another discard from God's eternal kingdom because he was not worthy for his presence, not worthy to sit around his throne. I don't, uh, I preach on hell less than anything in the Bible, probably about once every 10 years. Why? Because I don't like it. Don't want to think about it. It's too horrible. It's like talking about a child that got 95% burn on their body. I'd rather not look at them and talk about them. I'm thankful there's some priestly people who can deal with that, but I can't deal with it. 
I believe it because the same God that spoke about heaven spoke three or four times as much about hell as he did heaven. And he said it's forever and ever. Now, I'd like to believe it's otherwise, but if I'm going to be a Bible believer and if I'm going to follow the God who was willing to die and shed his blood to save my soul from hell, I'm going to have to believe what he says about hell. If you would like to ask a Bible question, email us at biblequestions at nogreaterjoy.org or call at 931-805-4820. So those are the three main views of hell. And what I like to do in the doctrinal videos, and, and I, I probably, there's other topics, doctrines for me to touch on, but I'll probably take a break from doctrines uh, at least um, for a while because I really feel led to get into the end time stuff because I've been, God's been showing me quite a bit on this, uh, on end times. Anyway, but that's for the future. But anyway, when I do other doctrinal videos or this one, I like to present the different views and then let you decide. Um, with the doctrinal, I mean, with the, uh, sorry, the end time stuff, I'm going to, uh, sort of define the views and there, it'll be a series because there's a lot of things that I think, um, I have a strong case for that I want to get into and I hope it'll be interesting. So, um, anyway, uh, I hope you, uh, this was informative for you on this, on this episode and I encourage you all to read scripture and to uh, pray and ask God to help you understand. Because my, my belief isn't necessarily right. As I said, I believe in the, in the second one, conditional immortality slash annihilation. But read the scripture, pray. That is our source for truth, not my understanding of it. <laughs> so, all right. Thank you all, and have a wonderful day. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hendrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 16 and 18. Rob, go for instruction.